My name is Justin Logan. I'm the Director of Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Uh, and it's my pleasure to welcome you here this afternoon to our discussion or discussions on the Iraq War at 20 years. Before we get started, I'd like to thank the conference, tech, and AV people who make these events possible. Uh, my poor, tolerant wife is very uh, uh, gracious with my feelings, but right after her, in terms of frustration, it's probably the tech and AV people, so I'm very thankful for their tolerance. Um, we get started today uh, recalling uh, the 20th anniversary of the Iraq War. Um, on March 20th, of course, 2003, the administration of George W. Bush invaded Iraq. The administration made a range of arguments for invading, uh, but President Bush's speech announcing the war made clear that the war was necessary because Americans, quote, will not live at the mercy of an outlaw regime that threatens the peace with weapons of mass murder. We will meet that threat now so that we do not have to meet it later with armies of firefighters and police and doctors on the streets of our cities. That allusion to the attacks of September 11th was not a coincidence. Important members of the Bush national security team had been thinking about Iraq since the afternoon of September the 11th and some others even before September the 11th. As the Pentagon smoldered that afternoon, a memo from Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld uh, announced the need, quote, need to move swiftly. Near-term target needs go massive. Sweep it all up, things related and not. Best info fast. Judge whether this is good enough to hit Saddam Hussein at the same time, not only Osama bin Laden, end quote. This idea of regime change, as I mentioned, had been percolating since the first Gulf War and was codified into law by President Clinton in 1998 in the Iraq Liberation Act. I think for our purposes today, um, the Iraq War is proof positive that at least under certain sets of circumstances, ideas really do matter. The United States undertook a massive social science experiment in Iraq, both to rid it of an allegedly menacing arsenal and to transform it into a linchpin of US influence in the Middle East. Unfortunately, of course, it did not work out that way. Throughout the course of this afternoon, uh, you'll hear a lot about the arguments that took place at that time in 2002 and 2003, how the structure of our foreign policy debate today differs and may be similar in some ways to the debate of 20 years ago. But as we commemorate this decision to invade Iraq, um, we keep in mind the costs, roughly $2 trillion, according to Brown University's Costs of War Project. But more important than that, of course, are the lives lost. More than 4,000 Americans uh, were killed. More than 30,000 Americans were wounded, some grievously. And of course, it bears mentioning, hundreds of thousands of Iraqis died as a consequence of the decision to invade. So it's with that somewhat somber uh, table setting that we begin the first panel about the debate, such as it was, that took place around the decision to invade. I'll announce the speakers in alphabetical order, and unless anyone has vehement objections, we'll go in alphabetical order, starting with my colleague, Doug Bondo who's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute specializing in foreign policy and civil liberties. In a previous life, he worked as special assistant to President Ronald Reagan and was editor of the political magazine Inquiry. He's been a regular commentator in almost every print and broadcast media that you can imagine. And he received his undergraduate degree in economics from Florida State and has a JD from Stanford University Law School. Next is Jonathan Landay, a U.S. national security correspondent for Reuters, who's written about U.S. foreign affairs and defense policy for more than 30 years. 
His Iraq reporting, germane to our purposes today, for Knight Ritter slash McClatchy, as my notes say, uh, with Warren Strobel led to several awards, too many to name, really. Um, the 2003 Raymond Clapper Memorial Award, a 2005 National Headliners Award, an award of distinction in 2005 from the Medill School of Journalism, the list goes on. But there is one distinction with jo which Jonathan Landay has, which none of the other speakers you'll hear this afternoon have, Woody Harrelson portrayed him in a movie titled Shock and Awe, which was released in 2017, and actually has a star-studded cast and was a really interesting uh, viewing. So keep that in mind. Um, he studied at George Washington University. Next is Jessica Tuckman Matthews, who's a distinguished fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. She served as Carnegie's president for 18 years, relevant to our purposes today. Before her appointment in 1997, her career included posts both in the executive and legislative branches of government, in management and research in the nonprofit arena, and in journalism and science policy. She's published widely in newspapers and foreign policy and scientific journals, and has co-authored and co-edited three books. She has a PhD in molecular biology from the California Institute of Technology and graduated magna cum laude from Radcliffe University. And finally is Professor Shibley Talhami, who is the Anwar Sadat Professor for Peace and Development at the University of Maryland, just up the road, and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. In the past, he served as a senior advisor to the State Department, an advisor to the U.S. Mission to the U.N., an advisor to Congressman Lee Hamilton, and is a member of the Iraq Study Group. His best-selling book, The Stakes, America in the Middle East, which was, again, allusive to some of the problems the United States was likely to face, uh, was selected by Foreign Affairs as one of the top five books on the Middle East in 2003. He graduated with a Bachelor of Arts from Queens College CUNY and a Master of Arts in Graduate Theological Union and PhD, both from UC Berkeley. And also for our purposes today is just recently the author of an important book, which I have here entitled The One State Reality, uh, examining what is Israel-Palestine with a number of other co-editors. So with that windy introduction, I will turn the podium over to my colleague, Doug Bondo. Well, thanks, Justin. I normally, at an event like this, say that it's a pleasure to appear, but discussing this subject, I'm not sure if that's the right uh, introduction. This, I wish there were better circumstances for us to have this discussion. Uh, we're discussing the 20th anniversary of a decision to go to war that strikes me as certainly the worst decision of the Bush presidency and probably the worst foreign policy decision of any president over the last 60 years, I think having to go back to Vietnam. <clears throat> the real question is what went wrong? For anyone who was part of this city at that time, one felt that you were buried or uh, drowning in a, underneath a tsunami in terms of the pro-war sentiment. That, and I do think, and, and Justin mentioned this, that it matters a lot in particular because of the cost. And what I found interesting is that normally when I read people who say, oh, it was all worth it, they never bother to talk about the cost. And it strikes me it really was horrendous. As Justin mentioned, that if you throw in contractors, about 8,300 8, Americans died. If you throw in the costs for <clears throat> care of veterans, the total bill is likely to be over $3 trillion. 30,000 wounded, but as well as if you think about those who have PT, you know, P, PTSD, as well as suicides. You know, for both Iraq and Afghanistan, the number of both of those is about 30,000 each. That has to be added to the toll. 
In terms of Iraqis, 50,000 more or less died in terms of security forces. The estimates, the number of dead civilians, run anywhere between 200,000, which is kind of the starting point. It comes from a group, the Iraqi Body Count, which tried to have confirmation in terms of a killing, and they said, of course, in a sectarian war. You know, generally, if you're killing people, you don't carry them down to the local coroner to make sure they get counted. And some of the estimates ran over a million. And one can argue about those. Nevertheless, that's a horrendous toll. An estimate of up to nine million displaced, at least at some point, two million refugees driven from their homes. Many of those Christians, Alawites and uh, Yazidis and others who went to Syria and ended up, found themselves then in another civil war, you know, where a, sectari a, a non-sectarian dictator was overthrown. So what we're talking about here was a decision that didn't just have a small problem here or there. This was a decision that had horrendous consequences throughout the Middle East and to the people of the Middle East, people who very often are not talked about when it comes to these issues. You know, there's a new book out by Melvin Leffler. I have not read it yet. I have watched a couple of webinars in which he speaks, and it struck me that he went uh, rather easy on George W. Bush. And I don't think that one can uh, you know, take this decision easily. It strikes me the first problem was basically hubris, that this is a city that celebrates America as the unipower, the essential nation, the sole superpower, that uh, the U.S. won the Cold War, it had defeated Iraq already, as George H.W. Bush had said at the time, what we say goes, that uh, the notion was we weren't just going to defeat terrorists, we were going to remake the Middle East, drain the swamp, bring democracy, a whole host of other things. <clears throat> Previously, uh, you know, we've heard uh, you know, many of these sentiments, I would say, from uh, you know, Madeleine Albright, among others, that we stand taller. You know, her famous comment to uh, you know, Colin Powell, of what, what's the use of this military if we never use it? And it strikes me the most infamous statement to ask about the deaths of children due to uh, sanctions on Iraq. And one can argue about the numbers. But uh, her comment was, we think the price is worth it. And that strikes me as encapsulating the Bush administration's attitude, that the costs were really not something that were terribly important to deal with here. There was also, I think, a, a mixture of hysteria and fear that was manipulated by those who had an agenda. Afghanistan was going to be very easy. <clears throat> you know, that was, and that was an easy one to get into, given the role of al-Qaeda and the attack of 9-11. You know, Iraq, the evidence was much, much thinner. You know, then what one found was, with, even within the administration, the knowledge that many of the claims that were being made were controverted, were in dispute, were doubtful. Nevertheless, there was a very strong impetus to move ahead. And, and in fact, the agenda went further than just uh, Iraq. Michael Ledeen, for example, was famous for saying, among other things, that real men go to Tehran. You know, that uh, you know, the, the starting point is Iraq, but the, where we have to go ultimately is Iran. And that is a sentiment, I think, that undergirded, I mean, the idea of putting Ahmed Chalabi, who had not been in Iraq since 1957, to bring him in and take over and have you know, kind of a pro-American government uh, in Iraq and bases in the Middle East, et cetera, that agenda was very far. You know, many of these claims, I think, were very dubious. But uh, even by the administration, push these very hard. People I've talked to in the administration indicate that anyone who was skeptical of these claims was viewed as ideologically uh, un, uh, <clears throat> you know, you know, not somebody you wanted to have around. They were not reliable. You know, people in intelligence and elsewhere actually knew the Middle East were not particularly consulted. 
And uh, you found the ideological right, Republican Party, for many ways, for partisan reasons, pushing this very hard. And I think this infected the think tank community. That uh, you know, it's hard put to think of who opposed this at the time. I think Carnegie and Cato, but beyond that, very hard to think of any think tank where there was sustained opposition. Now, at Brookings, Bill Galston criticized it, but I do have to quote uh, you know, Michael O'Hanlon, who wrote something at the time. You know, Michael, who is a very serious fellow, who's been at the foreign policy program for a long time, wrote a piece February 5th, 2003, where he noted in his State of the Union address last week. President Bush was unpersuasive in his claims of Iraqi progress towards a nuclear weapon and of supposedly significant ties between Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda, yet the president was still convincing on his central point that the time for war is near. You know, and he went on from there, that uh, you know, Saddam Hussein is not eliminating his banned weapons voluntarily, and hence we soon will need to lead a military coalition to do the job ourselves. The case is that simple. And that, I think, really animated the analysis, if one wants to call it that, that came out of much of the think tank and policymaking community. And there was a, an enormous amount of demagoguery that got tied into this. That, uh, I mean, it strikes me, you put public hysteria and political opportunism together, you have a very, very bad mix. I remember one of the emails that came in in response to something I wrote was somebody who was horrified to have found I worked in the Reagan administration. Yet, of all things, I was opposing the Iraq war. And his comment was that I must be either a traitor or an idiot. My reaction, why not both, right? I mean, you know, why, why, why do we have to choose between one or the other? And you know, if you uh, oppose the war, you are said to be pro-Saddam Hussein. You know, I thought, well, there are you know, hundreds of other countries I don't want to go to war for. Does that mean that I'm pro their rulers as well? But this was the kind of you know, discussion that we got where dissent was treated as unpatriotic, et cetera. That um, I remember one article that I uh, you know, sent out. I got more than 60 angry emails in response, all of them negative. And uh, I, I won't recount the detail, but uh, you know, the publications I dealt with, shall we say, grew much less interest in running anything of mine, let alone anything on foreign policy. And even here at this institute, we felt some of the tremors of this debate, of how difficult it was uh, you know, for some people to accept that perhaps this was not, not a good war. And finally, I think what's really important and what bothers me perhaps most out of all of this is the refusal of most of the foreign policy community to reconsider and rethink their positions, and to have any accountability for decisions that were made. There are a few out there, and what, you know, some, some of my friends might occasionally sneer at these people. Nevertheless, I'm very happy to see what they've said. Max Boot, for example, Frank Fukuyama, and David Frum are people who have indicated, looking back, this did not turn out the way they wanted, and indeed indicating some, shall we say, reticence for trying to pursue similar policies in the future. Nevertheless, who has been held accountable? What policymaker you know, has not received a promotion, does not appear in the New York Times, is not busy in some well-paid sinecure proposing yet new ad adventures abroad? It strikes me that uh, it's a great tragedy to be the most powerful country on Earth, and yet, if you make a mistake of this magnitude, with the costs of this magnitude, no one actually holds you accountable and that you can go pursue your adventures in the future, presumably at similar cost to the same people that uh, you've done it to before. I think that we need to focus looking in the future of how do we make this right. 
And how do we make sure that we don't do this again? It's certainly important to recognize the military should not be the first option we look at. That there needs to be a high standard uh, you know, before you actually turn to the military and imagine that you can use it effectively. We should be skeptical of international social engineering. It's hard enough to try to remake America. The notion that we can transcend geography and religion and ethnicity in history and parachute in somewhere is, I think, a fantasy, and we've seen that. One you know, should not presume that local actors want us to help them in the way we think we, uh, they want to be helped. And we should recognize that in many areas of the world, that instability is perpetual. The notion that war is going to stabilize a region, I think, is looking exactly the wrong outcome. And we also need to insist that Congress take a serious and active role in oversight. That was the constitutional system. Legislators today much prefer to allow the president to make the tough decisions, and then they can applaud if they go well or carp and complain if they don't. We need to insist that this is a decision that the people's representatives are supposed to make and not be invested in one person in the Oval Office. Iraq, in many ways, has become the gift that keeps on giving. It's one of the reasons why the Global South is skeptical about Western claims on Ukraine. They have seen Western military intervention, and they have seen how the West treats their countries and their peoples, in contrast to believing the center of the universe is Europe and white Europeans. And I think this is something that's going to go on until people in the global south see a change in attitude you know, in the West. Much went wrong. What we need to do today is focus on the future and ensure that we'll never go through this experience again. Unfortunately, I don't think we're there yet, but I'm certainly hopeful that forums like this will help us get there. Thank you. Hi, I'm Jonathan Landay. I am um, a national security correspondent for Reuters, uh, but in the run-up to the war in Iraq, I was working for a company that no longer exists called Knight Ritter. It was the second largest newspaper company in the United States. Two administrative announcements before I continue speaking. First of all, I was one of a team of four people, and I want to acknowledge my other, uh, the other members of the team, Warren Strobel, who was my... Uh, reporting partner who now works for the uh, Wall Street Journal, John, John Walcott, who was our editor, um, and the late Joe Galloway. Uh, if you've ever seen the film We Were Soldiers Once and Young, Joe was the reporter in that uh, movie, and um, Shock and Awe that was made by Rob Reiner, in which I was played by Woody Harrelson, was the second movie that uh, featured Joe. Um, on September 12th, the day after September 12, 2001, the day after the attacks by al-Qaeda, Warren came back uh, from a reporting uh, uh, jaunt uh, to the Bureau and pulled us into John's office and said, there's been a National Security Council meeting and they haven't really been talking about Afghanistan, they've been talking about Iraq. And we looked at him and saying, what are you talking about? And this was the beginning of a three and a half to four year reporting project uh, in which basically we were the only two reporters, uh, and then Joe was brought into the team about a year later, who questioned uh, the justification for war, who uh, debunked the so-called intelligence. I don't like to call it intelligence. It wasn't intelligence. It was um, 
bogus, exaggerated, and cherry-picked information uh, that the Bush administration used to uh, justify the invasion of Iraq. My, very quickly, my second administrative announcement is that I am representing myself here as a former Knight Ritter reporter, then McClatchy, uh, not Reuters. Um, that began, as I said, uh, this very lonely four-year four project uh, that we uh, pursued uh, looking at the intelligence, looking at the justification for war, um, uh, looking at the idea uh, that was being sold to the American public by the Bush administration uh, that somehow Saddam Hussein had reconstituted his weapons of mass destruction program, including nuclear, despite the fact that at that point uh, the, United, the IAEA uh, had been conducting the most intrusive uh, inspection program uh, that had been uh, uh, conducted to date. Um, and had, um, had, had, had not only gone looking for uh, an, a nuclear weapons program that didn't exist, but also biological and chemical weapons too, which also didn't exist. Um, we wrote somewhere along the lines of 80 to 90 stories. Unfortunately, you can't get them. They're behind the McClatchy paywall. Um, but, uh, but basically what we did was uh, I took the, the, the nuclear file, so-called, uh, the weapons of mass destruction file, Warren started looking at uh, the, the question of whether or not there was this um, uh, alliance between uh, Saddam Hussein, uh, who uh, was a secular uh, authoritarian, um, uh, presiding over a, a country in which the majority uh, Shia were being, had been suppressed for years, had used chemical weapons against his own people in Iran. Um, and, and Warren, uh, as I said, uh, and, and we were supposed to, the American public was being sold the line that um, this man was in alliance with a Sunni uh, a Muslim extremist whose whole raison d'etre, and you can read it in the fatwas he issued, was to overthrow dictators like Saddam Hussein. Um, when we, we sat down and we started talking about this, Warren, who had spent some time in Iraq, John, who had spent a lot of time in the Middle East, myself, who had spent a lot of time in the Middle East and had been covering nuclear proliferation, looked at each other and said, this makes no sense whatsoever. And so we were kind of off to the races. Let me just note that up to that point, and until I began my reporting pro the reporting project, um, I was also a part of this groupthink that, uh, that in Washington that yes, Saddam Hussein, of course he had, he had uh, weapons of mass destruction programs, of course he was hiding them, of course he was reconstituting his nuclear weapons program, but the more I did the reporting, the more it became quite apparent that that was not possible. Um, and, and why do I say that? Because the uh, IAE inspectors had left a treasure trove of uh, information and data that was publicly available to anyone who wanted to go in and read it and do the work. Um, and uh, the fact is that, as I said, it made no sense, not only that he, was, he had this tie-up with bin Laden, um, uh, the, the question being, why would uh, Saddam give his, you know, why was there this, this threat of Saddam giving his crown jewels, the, the, the weapons that actually allegedly were keeping him, his alleged weapons that were keeping him in power, why would he give them to this uh, Sunni uh, Muslim extremist based in Afghanistan? So 
again, made no sense. Um, what everybody knows now is that the Bush administration cherry-picked its case for war uh, using, as I said, information, uh, not intelligence, um, because they actually, they, and much of that information came from uh, a couple of sources. One, Ahmad Chalabi, uh, the head of the Iraqi National Congress, whose whole agenda was to replace Saddam himself, uh, with himself. Um, and um, the fact that they adopt, you know, that he was feeding uh, not just the administration, but the New York Times with all of this information that was bogus and exaggerated about Saddam, um, you know, hiding these weapons of mass, mass destruction program. But at the same time, what they did reject on a number of occasions, beginning, I believe, on, on September 12th, uh, if I recollect, was the fact that the, while the intelligence community was saying, yeah, we think that he has reconstituted these programs, um, th they rejected the intelligence community's findings that, there, that it was highly unlikely that, that there was no cooperation between al-Qaeda, between bin Laden and Saddam, and it was highly unlikely that there ever was or ever could be. Those, that, that did not fit uh, their public messaging, and so, they, uh, and so, but they, so they, they rejected that part of it. When, what, we, what, what I, we determined was a number of things. First of all, there could not have been, he could not have hidden a, a, a nuclear weapons program because it would have been impossible to hide, uh, particularly when it comes to centrifuges, which is what the allegation was, that he had secret centrifuges that he had made, manufactured with these aluminum tubes that he had gotten a hold of. Uh, but in, what I determined uh, in, in my reporting was that, first of all, the eyes, every, virtually every national technical means of the United States and others was trained on Iraq. You had inspectors on the ground. And in order to run a centrifuge program like that, you need a massive amount of, 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 of power. You need to supply these huge banks of centrifuges with enormous amounts of power. But nobody was seeing that or discovering that power source. And so that, that made no sense. Looking at the, uh, the, the, the so-called aluminum tubes, um, if you read Judith Miller's book, there's two lines in there about the fact that I, uh, that I debunked her, her um, uh, reporting on that. Um, very, it was very easy. I went to this, one of the same experts that she went to um, she decided not to use what he told her, but, he, but uh, he said to me, I called him too, and I said, what's going on here? And he said, it's not possible. And he put me in touch with a source in the American centrifuge program who had seen all the data and told me it's impossible that these tubes could be used for centrifuges because they're anodized on both inside and outside, and you can't use these tubes for that purpose. That was, that was something that Judith Miller could have done by going to the same source that the same person we talked to sent me to. That, that, was, one of the, that was one of the major flaws in, in their reporting, in the press reporting. Um, there were a whole bunch of others that I don't have a lot of time to go into. We can talk, to, talk about it later. Um, and then we also discovered, if you wish, in the Q&A, and then we also discovered about the, the further cherry-picking 
that was done by the administration when it came to their contention that there were these connections between Al-Qaeda and Saddam. The administration said that Saddam's uh, ambassador to Turkey, who was a, a, a senior intelligence official, had gone to meet bin Laden in Afghanistan, in Kandahar, which turned out to be true. What they didn't tell the American public was that after he left, because there was an agent belonging to a, a, another power who was uh, very close to the United States in the bin Laden camp, that bin Laden had said to his to Zawahiri after that, after that meeting, we're not going to do that because it will become his agenda, not ours. So that's, that's just another example of the cherry picking uh, that was done with the information. Um, I'll wrap up really quickly just by saying that other news organizations could have done what we did. We did journalism. Um, we had a guiding, uh, our guiding rule was, if the government says something, we have to ask one question, is it true? That's a line in the movie, by the way. Um, but, but also, uh, the fact that we got into this in the way we did was because Knight Ritter, which was the second largest newspaper uh, company in the United States, I think something like 32 newspapers, those newspapers were not in Los Angeles, were not in New York, and were not in Washington. What my editor, John Walcott, said is, we write, we don't write for people who send other people, uh, other uh, Americans' families to war. We write for the families whose children get sent to war and whose husbands get sent to war, and whose uncles and aunts get sent to war. And that, those were the, our two guiding principles. And uh, you know, 20 years later, um, here we are. Um, I'm still able to, to you know, promote the work that we did, as well as shamelessly promote the movie. Thank you. Well, our, our uh, assignment for this panel was to try to capture the sense of the political environment uh, in the period um, immediately preceding uh, the invasion. And if I had to capture it in one phrase, I would say it was shock and fear. Shock because the, the, um, the event of 9-11 really was, and it's important to go back and remember how deep the, um, the feeling of this can't possibly have happened was in this country. And the um, instantaneous coming together, uh, the Bush's uh, approval rating went from down in the just miserable range shot up to just about 80%, almost overnight, uh, before they did anything. Just in the sense of, we've been attacked, we're at war, we've come together. First time the United States had been attacked since 1812. It, and, and a sense of, uh, th this was impossible. And that lingered um, in 2002. And it did lead to an enormous suspension of disbelief. And, and uh, an unwillingness to question some of the things you've just heard about and some of the things that I, I want to highlight. Um, so much so that 
um, you know, one consequence of the fact that Knight Ritter was the only paper chain that was really newspapers that were really questioning these claims. The flip side of that is that there was this torrent of war rooms and deadlines and red lines on, and kernels on the television every night about the impending war. Um, so much so that really anybody, um, as I guess Jonathan just said, uh, who started to question uh, it was taken as, as somebody from just far left field. Whereas, in fact, the far left field stuff was coming from the administration. And I, I, I want to just uh, highlight for you some, some of that. Um, the first thing, and, and all of these claims kind of started small at the beginning of 2002 and then grew over the year. Um, the first was that they routinely conflated the various forms of WMD. So chemical, biological, nuclear all became WMD. Chemical weapons are generally, particularly what Iraq had, a very, very minor threat. Um, nuclear is an enormous threat. When you put them together, you get confusion. That was, um, and that, that continued all the way through. Um, and it was highlighted by um, talk of mushroom clouds. The president did that, the vice president did that, and Condi Rice did that. All three of them made explicit reference to, to mushroom clouds. So the fact that Americans thought they were facing what Cheney called a mortal threat is pretty understandable. The second, I won't spend much time on because it's been referenced, and that was the claim over and over and over again that Saddam would give weapons of mass destruction to terrorists. Um, there was no evidence for that and a lot of evidence against it. Um, and uh, it was very difficult um, to, to focus anybody on kind of obvious things like why would a, why would a dictator give his crown jewels to people he couldn't control. Um, and, as, and especially terrorists who might then use them against him. Um, the third uh, a systemic problem was the misuse of the intelligence product. So that starting small but growing over the year, the administration spokesmen routinely dropped the caveats that were coming from the intelligence community. So. Sentences that began, we suspect, became we know, or we cannot, we cannot uh, exclude. Um, and that reached its apotheosis in Secretary Powell's appearance at the UN, um, which he has written was his most regrettable moment in his public career, even after he had spent a week going through the material he'd been given to say and taking out a ton of it. But even so, he left in, not on purpose, um, uh, all kinds of misstatements. I want to just, I want to underline this because I, I, to me, it has always been the most appalling example of this, and, and it's really an important one. And that is 
what they said about biological weapons. Um, what the inspectors, the UNSCOM inspectors, that was the first set of international inspection that went from 1991 to 1997. What they, what they found and concluded was that there was 2,500 liters of biological growth medium unaccounted for. And that's all they said. But then they said to try to give it context, they wrote that that amount could have produced about three times as much anthrax as Iraq had admitted to having. And this is what the president made of that statement. This is a quote, this was in the, uh, the infamous October 7th speech in Cincinnati. The inspectors, however, concluded that Iraq had likely produced two to four times that amount this is a massive stockpile of biological weapons that has never been accounted for and is capable of killing millions. So in two sentences, what you have is a, first a possibility that becomes a likelihood, then a likelihood that becomes fact with the creation of this huge stockpile. And then finally, biological agent is turned into weapons and not just any weapons, but extremely sophisticated weapons, because the only way you could kill millions with that amount of biological weapons would, was with tremendous sophistication. So two sentences, two short sentences, 35 words or so, something like that, you get a threat that's minor to disappearingly small and, and uh, very um, uncertain anyway, to dire. And this was, the, this was the pattern over and over and over again. Um, on top of that, you had some policy shifts that were really important. Um, the first was um, tied to this question about um, that Saddam might give his weapons to terrorists. The statement in the national security strategy, the Bush national security strategy, uh, the following. Given the goals of rogue states and terrorists, the US can no longer rely on a reactive posture as we have in the past. Now, to say that deterrence in the Cold War was a reactive posture is a profound, profound misstatement. There is nothing profound about deterrence and containment. I mean, nothing, excuse me, um, reactive about it, because obviously, after a, a first strike Russian attack, uh, there is no response. So to say that deterrence was reactive was to profoundly mislead the American public. It also laid the basis for making the claim that a war of preemption, which is legit under international law, when there is an imminent threat, is the same thing as a very loose standard of a war of prevention, which, for which there is no international legality. And the other um, uh, aspect that changed things dramatically was the enormous inflation of both the immediacy and the scope of the threat. Um, to say that we had never before faced a threat 
of, um, with this magnitude of potential harm, that's a quote, when we had faced 3,000 megatons of Soviet threat during the Cold War, which is 200,000 Hiroshima's, against a nuclear threat that people in the administration knew had been found and dismantled by UNSCOM is, um, you know, I, I um, uh, struggled all the time um, in these months not to use the word lie because I knew that if we did, everything else we wrote in these studies and reports that we were putting out would be lost. Um, and so we would say um, mis misrepresentation. But this was a constant campaign of distortion and misrepresentation and threat inflation. I put some emphasis on the latter now because um, I think we may be going through a similar period with respect to China. Not as acute perhaps, but, but the same kind of groupthink that just builds on itself and builds and builds and builds. So um, just to finish, well, um, Justin asked me to say a word about the think tank community. The, and Jonathan, I think, made this pretty clear. Um, with maybe the exception of Cato and Carnegie, none of the big foreign policy think tanks felt able to really engage in a debate on these enormously questionable. And, and you know, one of the things that's striking when you look back and read is how much was available on an unclassified basis if you took the trouble to look. Um, and uh, we did, and the, the UNSCOM archive, which has never actually really been, been uh, delved into, was 30 million pages. Um, they found and dismantled uh, the nuclear program. They found, they discovered the biological, they found the, these old chemical weapons, and they concluded, by the way, that the engineers were so unable to create chemical weapons with adequate shelf life that they had quit making them. And that the stockpile that they had of chemical weapons had lost its battlefield utility in 1991. Um, so they had decided, and since they couldn't do the shelf life problem, that they would have a sort of just-in-time uh, production capacity, if they needed it and more, they would start making it um, uh, so that they didn't actually have um, anything to worry about then. Um, so the th if I could tell you a personal story, my office was six blocks from here um, on the second floor facing Mass Ave, and, I, and my f when I was on the phone, I used to just look out the window and I was looking out the window one day and I saw a senior vice president from Carnegie in a very heated discussion with a senior vice president from another think tank, you know, 20 feet away. And later that afternoon he came in and said to me, you know what so-and-so said to me today? And I said, no, he said, 
What is Jessica doing? Nobody from Carnegie will ever get an administration job in the future. <laughs> and that really was the feeling, that there was no point that this was such a, uh, this was on such a narrow track that was definitely going to go ahead, that there was no point in trying to say anything about it. And so four different think tanks instead devoted their efforts to big studies of what the U.S. should do immediately after the invasion, four of them. And they had almost identical conclusions, which unfortunately administration ignored um, about the importance of, of police activity immediately afterwards. We didn't have in that year, for this very specific reason that it was the after 9-11, we didn't have the kind of debate that I think we would have had we would have had in in any other in any other time everything fell apart the media didn't do its job the think tanks didn't do their job um, academia didn't do their job and the public didn't do their job and congress didn't do their job because in fact if more members who said they had gone to read uh, the NIE had in fact read it and read it with some knowledge, uh, they couldn't help but have been convinced that this was um, not a real uh, threat that we were um, stampeding off after. So stampede, I think, actually is a very um, appropriate word for, unfortunately, what happened in, that, in, that, in 2002. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for hosting me, and um, it's really a pleasure to uh, share this panel with my esteemed colleagues, many of them I've known for, for years, maybe even decades, including with Jonathan talking about the Iraq war when it happened, and he was absolutely one of the uh, most perceptive and honest reporters at that time, and it was obvious even before the disaster became clear in the Iraq war. Um, you know, my colleagues talk a lot about the pretext for the war, uh, the pretext for the war, and we all know what they are. One of the things that, um, um, you know, is not clear is at what point did the administration take that decision? And uh, on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, which was just a little over a year ago, uh, I hosted Bruce Riddell, my colleague at Brookings, who was then Bush's advisor on the Middle East at the White House. Uh, and Ryan Crocker, uh, whom you know as a uh, very accomplished diplomat, who was then dispatched to uh, Afghanistan uh, and uh, uh, Iraq later on. And um, we just, I just actually reposted that conversation because it was very revealing. But one of the things that was revealed was by Bruce Riddell, and he said he was just consulting his notes uh, before he came on the panel from that period. And he said that... Three days after 9-11, he was with President Bush when President Bush called Tony Blair, then Prime Minister uh, of Britain, and uh, uh, Bush told Blair on the phone, we are going to attack Iraq. Three days after 9-11.
And uh, Blair was apparently stunned, although, you know, Blair later, you know, uh, not only embraced uh, the war, became one of the biggest advocates, and to this day he doesn't apologize for it. But at the time, he was apparently stunned. And he asked Bush, well, do we have a link between the two? And of course, there was none. And so just trace that back. We can talk about why it happened. Uh, all the pretexts obviously were built afterwards. They were not done uh, as they were merely pretexts, as we have come to know in reality, both weapons of mass destruction and later this concocted idea that we're spraying democracy in the Middle East uh, as something once we discovered weapons of mass destruction were not there. What I was asked to do, though, is um, talk a little bit about um, uh, what we scholars, realists particularly, in, in the American Academy, Je Jessica said scholars didn't do enough. And it's a case where actually we did quite a bit. Uh, and um, we placed an ad that, that I helped organize in the New York Times uh, in uh, uh, early September 2002. And the ad said, the title of the ad was, a war with Iraq is not in America's national interest. And then we laid out the, result, the reasons why. It was signed by over 30 prominent realists around the country. So what I want to do, first of all, is give you the context of that ad, why, why, how it happened, how it came about, why we decided to do that. And by the way, to think about it, this is an ad where we had to pay, out of our own pockets, close to $40,000 to place a quarter-page ad in the op-ed page of the New York Times. This was not just having asking someone, uh, sign, please sign this ad. It was, please sign and pay, okay? And, and we all know how hard that is, how much harder it is, particularly when, when you're going to, in some cases, assistant professors, but most of these were senior professors. Um, so what gave me the idea of doing the ad is three things that my colleagues talked about in terms of the mindset in our politics, in our discourse, uh, that, that led to kind of like a, uh, as Jessica put it, stampede toward the war. And so I happened to have done several things over the summer that led me to this conclusion. One was I, uh, I was writing quite a bit on these issues at the time, right after 9-11, quite, quite a number of articles and op-eds across the country. One, I wrote a piece against the war uh, in... Um, I think it may have been June or July, that I submitted to a, one of the top newspapers in the country. And I knew the op-ed editor, and I've worked with him before. And he, he, he talked to me on the phone. He said, I like the piece, but, quote, the train has already left the station. Okay? And so we, we don't run pieces like that anymore. Uh, you know, th that's not what we're talking about. You know, that, that's already yesterday's story. Uh, it so happened that um, I was also invited to testify before Titan, Biden's Senate committee uh, in, I believe it was in August 2002, uh, on the Iraq war. But the idea, as, as Jessica said, was let's look ahead. What would happen if we were to invade Iraq? Could you speak about what the Arab states would do if we were to invade Iraq? And that was the narrow mandate that was for that particular conversation. Roughly the same time, um, I, had, I uh, was um, at a round table at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. Uh, I'm a member. Uh, and um, at the time, the, the president of the Council on Foreign Relations was uh, Leslie Gelb, um, the late Leslie Gelb, um, 
uh, may he rest in peace. He, he was somebody I knew well, and uh, many of you uh, who don't know him, he was, you know, not only as a journalist, but also he actually wrote an excellent book on Vietnam called uh, The Irony of Vietnam, the system work with, with Richard Betts. So he was somebody, and I used that book in the past, actually, in my international relations courses. And uh, when I spoke about against the war, he came to me afterwards and I, he said, uh, I had uh, thought that you were a realist, but you were against the war. And I said, uh, what do you mean about a realist? He said, well, all the realists I know are, are for the war. And I said, uh, I, I don't know a single realist who's for the war. Name them. Tell me who they are. So he named Jim Woolsey, Richard Pearl, Paul Wolfowitz, and Charles Gradhammer. And I said to him, in my field, these are not realists. These are neoconservatives. But um, the term neoconservative at the time, you might not know, now it's a household name. It wasn't really used much at all. People didn't even know, what is the neoconservative? This was something that emerged afterwards. So it so happened, I came home, and I had a conversation with um, uh, my colleague at Chicago, John Mearsheimer, over something completely unrelated. And as we were talking about the conversation, I was relaying this idea that realists were for the war. And I said to him, do you know any realist at all who's for the war? He said, I can't think of any. I said, well, this is not known in, this is not known in our public discourse. Why don't we do an ad, run it, and, and, and we'll raise the money, we'll put it out there, and we will, we will we'll at least put it out there for historical record. We, we had no illusion that our, and, we, and so then he contacted um, our colleague at, uh, at uh, Harvard, uh, Steve Walton, three of us, uh, then organized, um, organized this ad uh, to go into the New York Times, uh, again, having no illusions, but we wanted to be on the record. Uh, we did request a meeting at the White House if they wanted to meet with us, and obviously that wasn't going to happen. Uh, and um, every single one of the realists that we called in the country agreed, with no exception. And I have to tell you that if we had opened it up to all scholars of international relations, I think we would have had hundreds of people. We, we were limiting ourselves mostly to realists only because of this discourse, thinking realists who focus on power would be for the war. We wanted to make sure that, wasn't, that was understood. And we had not a single one who said no. To my knowledge, there was two cases where there were, one was, uh, essentially didn't sign. Uh, I did not talk to him, uh, and that was Sam Huntington. Sam Huntington was uh, contacted by one of my colleagues, and Sam said, quote, I'm with you in spirit, but I don't want to put my position out there publicly against some of my students who are on the other side. I, I, this is a reported conversation. I did not have it with him. And then my colleague, uh, Tom Schelling, a distinguished scholar who, who was um, in my university, I was very friendly with him, who was completely on board, but he said, yes, but I want to wait until Powell tries at the UN, and I want to see how the UN reacts. And, and we waited, actually, to place the ad uh, for uh, many days 
to see what the outcome of that conversation would be just to get Tom's signature and then when nothing happened at the UN and the disappointed came, disappointment came, Tom Schelling signed it and we, we were universal. So ultimately it was placed in the op-ed page, the quarter page, uh, uh, and guess what happened? In this, on the same page, the New York Times placed a high-profile pro-war article right above it, op-ed page. Now, I want to you know, um, um, end by saying a lot of my colleagues said we haven't really come to grips either with the mindset that led us to the Iraq war or to accountability about those who we know misled us into that war. It's not just that they failed. It was a deliberate misleading into a disastrous war. And we still face it. Now, I want to give you just a little bit of an example. Uh, it's not just about what the conversation we have about Iran. But think about this um, agreement that just happened, which is a minor agreement, basically renewal diplomatic relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Yes, it was mediated by China, but let's evaluate it. Who, it does it really matter who mediated it? Is the agreement good or bad? And I want to tie this a little bit to the Iraq war and the debate that we have to end. And that is that we all know how devastating the Iraq war is. My colleagues spoke about, and you know, I can't tell you it wasn't only devastating to us in America, to people, to veterans who still have to uh, live, to people, to, to uh, you know, uh, people who lost loved ones, uh, aside from the money and, and, and the national security interests, and the undermining of the international global order in a way that have lost us credibility when we're trying to make a case to win the global south, uh, as has been noted. But in the Middle East, it has been absolutely devastating. There's nothing that has been as destructive to the Middle East across the board than this single event. It's not just Iraq. Iraq is obviously devastated. But it's also true as what happened across the region. And one of the outcomes, direct outcomes, was because of the destruction of Iraq, the rise of Iranian influence, and the insecurities that emerged in the Gulf have led to this incredible proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia. That proxy war that has emerged because of that Iraq war, that proxy war, I wrote a piece uh, when Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, visited the White House in 2017, saying, Mohammed bin Salman, the son of the Iraq war. Because in fact, a lot of what the Saudis have done have come out of that Iraq war. And so the devastating proxy wars that have devastated uh, you know, Yemen, that have been devastating to Syria, Iraq, uh, uh, Lebanon, and beyond, uh, that is in large part a, a product of this war. And to think that we now shouldn't be pleased that Iran and, and Saudi Arabia should be coming together to mitigate some of those awful destructive wars between them, that is, I think, not coming to grips, not only with the reality in the Middle East and the people of the Middle East, rather than thinking about it through a narrow prism, uh, but also not coming to grips with our own role in bringing about that destruction. Thank you.
Thank you very much to all of the presenters for that. Um, it's time for me to cop to my dismal failure as a moderator. Uh, I didn't mention that you can submit questions online uh, using the hashtag CatoFP or on the website that where you're watching, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or God knows where else. Um, I wanted to usurp the privilege, though, having already failed as a moderator, to ask the panel, uh, Jonathan Landay mentioned, you know, the one question that they asked was, is it true? And there's, of course, the more biting and florid uh, journalistic aphorism, if your mother tells you she loves you, check it out, um, which is the other version of that. But I want to, you talked about getting beyond the, of course he has these weapons, of course. And I think that in some senses, we really did start the movie in the middle, where it was we all just had these shared assumptions about what Saddam possessed, what his aspirations were, what his tolerance for risk was, what his relationship with Al-Qaeda was. And, you know, to talk about cherry picking, you have to first decide that you want to pick cherries, right? It, it, it's not just um, um, a replacement for analysis. It is a, an instrumental use of analysis. And so, I, you know, as somebody who just got started with this work as, as, as the war had started, found myself coming into the office day after day and looking out the window and plaintively asking myself, am I insane? Is everyone else right and I'm wrong? And I wanted to ask you, is it a kind of intellectual style? That are you just irascible? Are you people you just won't listen to authority, right? Is it a kind of rebellion? Or why did a small group of people continue asking questions that they themselves, why did you get beyond the of course? Why keep pressing on what we all believe? Because that's journalism. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and I, there are so many, so many examples I can give you of, of how we did our work. Um, but basically, it's just straight journalism. I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, I meant you meant one of someone here mentioned. I mentioned the the the, uh, the archive of the um, the inspectors, the the IAEA inspectors, UN inspectors, uh, which is available to anybody who wants to go and read it. Um, there was, and I spent a month doing this before we wrote any, before I wrote anything. And then I got actually shipped off um, to Afghanistan for four months to go cover the American invasion. But um, I remember um, going into that archive and looking and finding the interrogation, not interrogation, well, it was an interrogation, that the inspectors had with uh, Saddam Hussein's son-in-law, who had defected, um, who was in charge of the weapons of mass destruction programs. And it was there for anybody to find. Um, and it's really interesting. And, 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 what he's, and, and when you deal with defectors, I mean, defectors want to make themselves as valuable as they possibly can, because they want you to say to them, Okay, um, if you tell us everything, you can come to the United States, or you can, you know, you can come to Europe, uh, and we'll protect you. But he gave it all up in that one interview. He talked about how Saddam had gotten rid of everything. He told the inspectors where to find all the documentation uh, 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 for the biological weapons program on his chicken farm, 
which were, they were they were they were hidden in in uh, in his chicken farm. Um, it was, and he said, we 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 got rid of it all, and this came in great value to me. Um, in August of 2002, when Vice President then Vice President Cheney addressed the Veterans of Foreign War Convention, and and said the following. He said, um, and I'm going to paraphrase. Actually, he talked about how some of us. Uh, believe that he has reconstituted his his nuclear weapons program and will develop a nuclear weapon fairly soon. And based on what I had written, uh, I had read from Saddam Hussein's uh, the the interrogation of his his son-in-law, who by the way was refused because he had given it all up uh, uh, to be uh, uh, given asylum anywhere, and had to go back to Iraq, and subsequently was massacred with his by him uh, with his family by Saddam's one of his sons. Um, uh, you know, it, it what the pri vice president was saying was absolutely didn't make any sense whatsoever, um, and so I called a source of mine, and this is a scene in the movie. Um, I called a source of mine who had been dealing with this, with proliferation issues for a very long time, um, and, I, and, and who had been refusing to talk to me up until that, until that speech. And I said to my source, I said, what is the vice president talking about? And my source said, the vice president is lying. And we were, and, and this really began, really got us going because, and I wasn't allowed to, to use it at that point. I got permission from the source who I still talk to on a regular basis uh, to be able to use that dialogue in the movie. Um, uh, so so that, that just shows you what you are able to do using public sources. Um, then, then there was another. Then the, the the aluminum tube story that I produced. The I debunked every single defector um, that that the INC had produced, except for one uh, that the the Los Angeles Times uh, debunked. A guy by the name of Curveball, um, who had turned himself over to the Germans and said, "Hey, I'm a, I, you know, I had been in all his." all of Saddam's nuclear uh, WMD facilities, and the guy who went over there from the US intelligence community to interview him came back and said, this guy is not telling the truth, and gave him the sobriquet curveball, and yet his material was used by the administration. Judith Miller's material about uh, some, some of the, the stories she wrote made it into official US uh, government documents. There was one, a report that was given to the UN Security Council. I think it was called A Decade of uh, Defiance and um, deception. Yeah, Deception, yes. There was a line in there about his weapons of mass destruction program that until uh, uh, after, this, after it was distributed to every country in the world and every journalist um, got footnoted finally uh, back to a Judith Miller article that I, I debunked, which was this idea that there was this guy who, the, produced by the INC, showed up, uh, they brought him to Thailand, produced him for the DIA. They started, uh, you know, uh, uh, questioning him, and, and they thought they had the mother load. They started sending faxing. Um, because there was, you know, the internet was in its infancy back then. But they started faxing the interrogation in real time back to the Pentagon, um, and then they brought in the CIA, uh, a, a CIA um, a polygraph team, 
and the polygraph team determined that this guy had actually been coached to say what he was saying about being in 20 of Saddam's weapons of mass destruction programs, that he, Saddam had a biological weapons program under a hospital, under his uh, uh, a, a lab, under, under one of his palaces. I mean, the last thing you want is a biological weapons program under your house, right? That he had these facilities and water wells in private. And I looked at this story and I said, wait, there's some, something wrong here. And that was one of them. The other thing was that the guy was a Kurd. And I said, wait a minute, you mean Saddam is going to let a Kurd into his, into his most secret facilities? Absolutely not, absolute nonsense. And I did the reporting and I determined that he, this guy had been coached. I am convinced that he and the other defectors that, and I'll stop here, the other defectors that I, I debunked were actually almost certainly uh, coached and produced for the INC by the Iranians. Let's not forget, the United States was paying Ahmad Chalabi's rent the, 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 you know, to, to, uh, for a house in, in Tehran. He had an office in Tehran that we were paying for. He had a quote-unquote intelligence gathering program that the State Department was paying for. And he was, and, and the INC was asked, and I'll stop here because I, I could go on and on. Sound like Beethoven. Yeah, right. I'll stop here. The I'll INC, stop here. The INC was asked by the Senate Appropriations Committee, "Can you justify why we are paying for an a, a, not a covert but an overt intelligence gathering program that the State Department is overseeing?" And they sent. It was called the Information Gathering Program, and it was supposed to be sending information back to the United States about the humanitarian needs in Iran, Iraq. Instead, they sent a six-page letter back to the Appropriations Committee that I got a hold of, in which they said, oh no, we're we've got guys seated throughout the government, the top ranks of the military and the, and, the, uh, and, and the bureaucracy, and as soon as the first American soldier, and I'm paraphrasing here, sets foot in Iraq, these guys are all gonna rise up and replace Saddam. And they included in the back of this a list of more than 100 newspaper and television and magazine articles that they had salted all this information into that didn't just include the New York Times. The Times of London was in there. The Associated Press was in there. Story after story after story. And I read every single one of them. And, I, and, and one of them included the Judith Miller story about this guy, she, when they, in, back, back to Thailand, when they determined that the, he had been coached, they basically kicked him out. The INC called Judith Miller, flew her, she flew to Thailand, spoke to the guy and produced this story on December 2nd, I think it was December 2nd, 2002, about, the, you know, this is the mother load, right? Um, and I, I wrote, I, I debunked that story, and it forced the New York Times finally, in January of 2003, to, to write an editor's note questioning their coverage. They put the editor's note on page 10. Can I, I just want to um, shed a different light on this. If you believed, as we did at Carnegie for several different reasons, we had, I didn't mention this, but we had, um, uh, one of our scholars, Min Shin Pei, had done a brilliant analysis of prior U.S. invasions for the purpose of regime change and had um, uh, traced 
over decades the result of those, and they had an abysmal record, and the few that had succeeded, um, Iraq had none of those characteristics. Um, we also had a team uh, in our democracy program that was working on the same lines that Shibley talked about, that the likelihood that this would lead to a flowering of democracy in the Middle East was just um, uh, wrong. As well as this group of, uh, that, of us that had worked for many, many years on nuclear issues. If you believed that the US was about to make a terrible mistake, then you didn't have to be irascible or difficult to continue to follow the, the information. You had to, because it, it, it was obvious, I think, before the war, long before the war, that this was going to be a disastrous mistake. And, um, and so you were compelled, I think, by the evidence. And as I said before, one of the things that's surprising when afterwards, when you listen to all the members of Congress who said, well, I just didn't know. I didn't know, I didn't know. It was there. It was, it was available. You just had to, you had to read it. <laughs> and you had to be aware enough to understand it. Only, I believe only, I believe only seven members of Congress read the National Intelligence Estimate on Iraq WMD that was filled with really questionable stuff um, and, and dissents. Um, and they did not include, I believe, Secretary of State, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, or the current uh, President of the United States, um, and, and various other members of Congress. They never read it. Yeah, I think that one needed to have a certain sense of history, a sense of how government operates, a sense of, to some degree, even cynicism, about the process, sense of independence, because, and because all of, everything worked against taking a serious look. I mean, one is, I think, look, this is a moment of national crisis. You want to believe your political leaders. They are coming and telling you that America is endangered. To say that they are wrong is tough. I think that uh, political partisanship was very important. Republican politicians saw this as a fabulous opportunity. The Democrats are traitors. We can destroy them. We can win the election. I think this, this is a city that's steeped in politics, and that became a very important factor. I think careerism, what uh, Jessica mentioned, that there's a point you understand where you're not going to get a job in the next administration. That suddenly, the, and especially if you think it's hopeless, why risk my credibility fighting against something that I can't stop? Uh, and, you know, and no sense of history. You know, they've done this before. You know, we, we've had these, you know, whether it be Tonkin Gulf or other things, there are lots of opportunities where you realize political leaders have agendas. And, in fact, interest groups have agendas, which should have been evident in their role in the Bush administration as well. That this was, you know, you didn't just have people who were interested in the disinterested public interest, but there were folks who had other things they were pushing, including geographic and politics and everything else. So it was a very difficult time. Because I do think that you had to, to <clears throat> some degree at Cato, well, we're kind of curmudgeons on everything. So, I mean, you know, every day on a lot of issues, I look out the window thinking, am I insane? You know, nobody else agrees with me. Something must be wrong. But I think for much of, you know, the, certainly even policymakers and the electorate, they're not foreign policy experts. 
Almost every article they're reading repeats the claims. The president is telling them this. The secretary of state is saying this before the United Nations. It's very hard to, for them to go out there and try to dig up the evidence if nobody else is presenting it. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I really appreciate this conversation. I wish we had even more time to get into it. Uh, I just want to say a few things uh, on my own because I'm, I'm obviously a scholar who's engaged in public discourse. That's how I see myself as, uh, you know, uh, as a, bringing my expertise to, to the public discourse. And, uh, and obviously, in moments like that, uh, there is no, you have to be absolutely clear and take a stand uh, but one of the things that I learned is that because of, we always are facing a war of idea. It's, and and oh, often we have a mainstream hegemony over ideas, uh, as we have seen in the stampede. And so the question is, how do you break through it? And it's not just like, I'm going to take a principal stand. No, it's not just that. Because I think what happens when there's this hegemony is people start doubting themselves, saying, Am I alone? Not realizing that there are so many people like them that you have to bring them out. And so, for example, you know, again, the ad, right? People, are, oh, no realist, no. Guess what? Every single realist is against the war. I actually started doing more public opinion polling. That was not something that I was doing in America, in part because I wanted to show that often the public is somewhere else. It's not where. You know, you're not alone when you think, yeah, I, I don't like this, but everybody seems to be on the other side. That's not where, where the public is, but you need, in a way, some kind of solidarity. Uh, uh, you, you can't act alone. You've got to find a way to bring people out uh, to challenge the hegemonic views, uh, you know, particularly in times of crisis, uh, like the, the period that preceded the Iraq War. But I'm worried now there are other issues that we're facing and we have not escaped this, uh, yeah, th this hegemony of ideas now layered by a deep polarization that transcends almost every conversation in America. Thank you very much for that. Having already avowed my failure as a moderator, uh, we're all going to rest with it now. Um, I want to particularly apologize to the people online, including either Governor Jerry Brown from California or someone saying he is Governor Jerry Brown from California. Uh, I regret that we usurped uh, all of the time here. We have a 15-minute break to refresh ourselves outside, and then we'll be back at it here. Thank you.